All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the first day of June, 2021. I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to invite you to keep your comments, whatever they may be, positive, negative, or neutral. Send them on to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. And, of course, we do want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. This week's sponsors are Novo Resources, Sitka Gold Corp, El Oro Resources, Irving Resources, Hannon Metals, Firefox Gold, Lion One Metals, and SK Mining Corp. I've titled today's show, Inflation, No Worries, says David Rosenberg. So David Rosenberg will be a guest in the second half of the hour. And Dr. Quentin Henning joins me after the first commercial break. And Eric Coffin is with me momentarily. He'll be giving some of his thoughts on the markets. While many investors believe a rising CPI in America is a serious economic threat, David Rosenberg thinks these worries are very much overblown. He says that what's going on isn't a fundamental shift, but rather a pendulum swing back to the opposite extreme following the sudden deflationary demand shock caused by the pandemic. Rosenberg argues that the supply and demand factors that have led to the highest core inflation since 1982 have evolved from unique circumstances related to the pandemic and that they are already starting to fade. We'll ask David to support those views and uh, perhaps throw a couple of contrary ideas his way as well to see what he has to say. And uh, as I said, he'll be with me in the second half of the hour. Quentin Henning will join me right after the first commercial break to comment on El Oro Resources. His May 26 report of a 123.6 meter drill intercept grading 122.7 grams per ton silver equivalent on El Oro's Esca, Esca property in Bolivia. We'll want to have hear what Quentin has to say about that, the significance of that, as well as prior drilling that's gone on now and I think they've found a second uh, breccia pipe that is mineralized of, with all sorts of metals and uh, we want to hear uh, what Quentin's uh, what Quentin's thoughts are now on uh, on that project uh, so he'll be with me after the first commercial break but right now I'm happy to tell you that Eric Coffin is with me to share some of his insights into the markets on the markets that we pay most attention to on this show Eric along with Scott Gibson is the co-founder of the Metals Investor Forum, and he is also the author of one of the best market letters for investors in junior mineral exploration stocks, and his views on the markets are always insightful, which is why I'm really happy that he's with me today, and uh, I should say that you can go to hraadvisory.com, hraadvisory.com, to sign up for Eric's very reasonably priced newsletter. Eric, thanks for joining me today. 
Thanks, Jay. Thanks for having me as always. Happy June. It, yeah, happy June to you, and it is a happier June than some of those in the past, given the, the kinds of things that you and I are invested in, that's for sure. Uh, but this uh, troubling to a lot of people, this CPI number that was a shock to the, mar- to the markets, the uh, April CPI numbers. Um, and as I mentioned, we're, we're expecting David Rosenberg, uh, he'll be, unless he's really changed his mind suddenly, telling us not to worry. Uh, CPI is no big deal. It's, it's, a, it's, it's higher than expected right now, but it's due to unusual circumstances. What are your thoughts on that issue that seems to be the issue of the day? I, I guess... I don't know, this is probably not a great answer, but I guess I, I guess I'm on the fence, but probably leaning in Rosie's direction mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to inflation. I mean, I I agree. Like a, a lot of the the April numbers, the May numbers that are coming. I mean, I I wrote three or four months ago. Look, we're going to get this big bounce in the next two or three months. A lot of this is base effects, so don't you know? Don't don't panic. I don't think it's 100 percent base effects. There's there's definitely been a lot of demand increases. Uh, in certainly in some of the things that are near and dear to us, like metals, which of course is great for resource stocks, but but really you add a lot of stuff up, but it doesn't really account for that much of the CPI. Uh, I I do agree. There's some uh, suspicious accounting. The whole owner equivalent rent. Maybe Rosie can comment on that because I've always found that a little bit odd because it's, it's housing prices are clearly rising much faster. Yeah. Owner equivalent rent. But all of that said, I do think a lot of this is, I think we are still dealing with a lot of supply chain issues. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a higher CPI number again in, mm-hmm. in May, but I, my expectation is that it is actually going to start easing off. And mm-hmm. from our you know, from our perspective, for what you know, what matters to you and me in terms of the stocks we follow, uh, one thing that I, I find interesting is if you look at the last two or three things that have kind of spooked the market momentarily, like CPI or IPMI numbers, I find it quite interesting that the bond market, which generally speaking, let's be honest, is smarter about this stuff than the equity market, hasn't reacted that much to that. And mm-hmm. that's actually really good news if you're a commodity and and or base and or precious metal investor because effectively what that means is that the headline inflation number has gone up bonds really aren't moving up in yield to meet it which means interest rates real interest rates inflation adjusts are actually getting more negative and they've gotten quite a bit more negative in the last two months yeah. and that's mm-hmm. been a really big underpinning for commodities and for precious metals and i i don't see that you know it's going to bounce around but I, I think we're going to see negative real rates here for a while, which is which is great for us. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And what a really strong correlation, um, you know, low or negative negative real rates to gold and silver too, I suppose. Um, yeah, I'm just wondering though, to to what extent those are really market rates, and to what extent the Fed might have its thumb on the scale. I mean, I, I, I if 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 the if the markets. They're buying. I mean, they've been doing a lot of buying. It's not a big secret. Like week in and week out, they're yeah. buying. I'm not. You know, I'm not sure they're buying is. I'm not sure it's enough in and of itself to, to to keep the yields down. Although I don't, I don't think there's much doubt. Uh, the way they talk, it certainly sounds to me like if if they had to impose yield curve control, they would. And mm-hmm. you can actually make you can make the argument that that, that there is some yield curve control going on right now. And I would certainly go along with the idea that there's debt monetization going on right now. That's, I mean, that's QE effectively is debt monetization. That's what they're doing. Uh, 
I mean, yeah, they're warehousing at some place in the Fed, but the, the basic the basic issue here is the the debt monetization that Austrian guys like you have worried about and warned mm-hmm. about for years. That's pretty much is what they're doing right now. Uh huh. Whatever, whatever, yeah. whatever they call it, that's what it is. But again, if you're a gold investor, like yeehaw. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, no doubt about it. Well, I know, you know, Stephen Druckenmuller made the point that, in fact, everything, all these trillions of dollars that are being created out of thin air, essentially that are financing, could not be done if the Fed wasn't in there uh, monetizing. So, but of course, if this is just a temporary thing, and we hope it is, because uh, nobody wants to see uh, any kind of, you know, meltdown or hyperinflation or anything else. So, um, I mean, well, okay. I think we see stuff get monetized because I just don't see, I don't see how you make the numbers work. I, I don't think the U.S. populace, as a voting populace, would say, "Yeah, sure, raise all of our tax rates thirty percent to pay the debt off." But like, they're they're going to have yeah. to find a way to bury it. Yeah, I don't see how any any way but monetization. Uh, it seems hard for me to uh, to see how that could any any other way. Um, so Rosenberg is expecting some commodity price weakness. I mean, we've certainly seen copper rise to tremendous levels. What, uh, what are, how are you viewing the base metals right now, Eric? I mean, long, long term, I'm extremely bullish on copper. I'm extremely mm-hmm. bullish on nickel. Uh, copper, just because of the electrification. Nickel, because it's not really that easy to find high-grade nickel deposits. They're actually pretty hard to find. Zinc, mm-hmm. I think, will do okay, too. Short-term... Um, I, I think Dave could be right. I'm not expecting anything dramatic, but there are, you know, if you look at the copper space, for instance, there are three or four very significant size mines that have started production. And I'm, I'm a little, I'm kind of watching the, the credit impulse in China with sort of, sort of one eye because it's weakened significantly. And credit impulse is essentially, it's essentially loan growth. It's lending. And, and China, as we all know, is an economy that runs on credit. So mm-hmm. the fact that that's, Sort of dived quite quite a bit actually in the last month or two has me a little bit nervous. I don't know if that means we're going to see them slack off on on metals purchases. They certainly haven't yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I know that Dave is uh, is somewhat bearish on the impact uh, on commodities. I think from China, so we'll hear what he has to say about that. But Eric, with just two minutes left, I don't know if you'd like to to share a stock, uh, something you think well, is, looks especially attractive right now. You know, it's a big favorite. The the, the president and I are, are good personal friends. It's not a big secret of my subscribers that I like it a lot. And that's a company called Sun Summit, Sun Summit which is SMM, Bond yeah. Adventure, mm-hmm. and SMREF, uh, OTC. They should have more drill results out, I think, next week. Uh, they've really changed the whole complexion of their buck property. They've released a lot more high-grade results than anyone expected from it. It was always kind of a low-grade bulk tonnage thing. Mm-hmm. They've I, I like the fact they've drilled in about ten different directions this mm-hmm. this phase. They're they're just trying to get some idea what the edges are. I know from talking to Bob Willis, they they really haven't found the edges anywhere. So I'm not expecting bad news, but it just feels to me like that's one that's going to be. I think it's going to be a big story this year. I, don't, I think it's a long way from being done on that story. Yeah, yeah. I don't think a lot of people are paying attention to it. I know he did. You did ha- invite him to the Metals Investor Forum. It's certainly one I've been watching and. Uh, bulk mineable story still though, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, with maybe some high grade spikes is. in there. Yeah, I, I think if you ask Bob, and, and Bob is a money engineer rather than a geologist, I think his answer would be, well, I know because he and I have talked about it. He's like, look, we've got this shallower stuff 
it's like this weird, it's this breccia stuff that's, you know, half a gram, three quarters of a gram, a gram, it's kind of right at surface. Then we've got these high-grade things that no one ever hit before, and they're still Mm -hmm. trying to figure out what's going on and how that's sitting. I think if you asked him, he would say, look, at the end of the day, what's probably going to happen here is we're going to put 500 holes in this thing, we're going to do grade shells, and hopefully somebody bigger is just going to buy us and let them figure out how much is Mm -hmm. open pit, how much is underground, whether you just dig the whole thing out. They just, they don't know yet, honestly. Mm Mm-hmm. How much drilling are they going to have to do before they can come up with a resource? Is, is that, do they have any thoughts oh, about I mean, that yet? Like well, I mean, this, they've got another 10 holes to report from this program. I suspect the next program is probably 20 or 30,000 meters, so probably 40 or 50 holes. So even at the end of that, it's just going to depend. If they haven't found the edges yet, I don't think yeah. they're going to be in a big rush to do a resource number. And I, right. I'm not sure they will have found the edges. The thing just keeps getting bigger as they step out of all right. Well, this is one one stock to keep an eye on. Uh, again, the name and the and the symbol, Eric, is Sun Summit. The symbol on the venture is S M as in mother and as in Nancy. On the OTC, it's S M R E F. Right. Exactly. Okay. Excellent. Thank you, Eric, so much for sharing those thoughts with our listeners. Um, Thank you. Some really good, day. really good thoughts, and uh, maybe some people will make some money on this one. I, I think they so will. I'm betting on it as well. I have some some shares myself. All right. Well, thanks, Eric, and uh, we'll look to do okay. it again sometime soon. Folks, uh, we do have to go to break, but don't go away. Quentin Henning will be with us to talk about Oral Resources. Very different kind of a project, a polymetallic, silver-tin-rich project, um, large-scale, bulk-mineable, looks like. Um, very interesting, and so we'll hear from Quentin when, he comes, uh, when we come back from the break, so don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Firefox Gold is actively exploring in Finland, where recent discoveries have sparked a new gold rush. Firefox controls a major portion of a prospective gold belt, giving the company a distinct advantage for exploration and strategic partnerships. The company's strong international leadership team, combined with its Finland-based exploration specialists, will put Firefox on the crest of the coming wave of gold discoveries. Firefox Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol FFOX. Go to firefoxgold.com to subscribe for updates. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Dr. Quentin Henning with me once again. This time, he's here to talk about El Oro Resources, a company that he is a technical advisor to. El Oro trades in Toronto under the symbol ELO. You can buy it down here in the States, as I have under the symbol ELRRF. Uh, I believe there's around 61 million shares outstanding. Uh, As far as I know, they haven't done a financing recently. U.S. price at 
$4.25 a little while ago when I checked it here in New York. That's in U.S. money, uh, giving it a market cap, uh, if my numbers are right, around $260 million. The company's primary focus is on the Isca Isca silver tin rich polymetallic project uh, in Bolivia. The geological setting is in a very large caldera where several breccia pipes have been identified, at least three of which are mineralized uh, and um, so let's, I want to hear more about it because there have been some very long intersections that have just been announced recently, the most recent drill holes, and I think one of them pierced through another breccia pipe that's mineralized. But uh, Quentin, thanks for joining me, and I hope you can update us on this uh, very exciting story. Thanks for joining me again. Yeah, always a pleasure, Jay. Now, um, maybe just give our listeners an overview of the Iska Iska project. I mean, this is quite unusual. It's got so many different minerals so many different metals that are uh, potentially uh, of value. So talk to us a little bit about the project and, and uh, perhaps why there's so much optimism surrounding it. Sure. Look, uh, it is a what we call a polymetallic system, poly meaning you know, multiple or many different metals, metallic. Uh, the system is typical of others in this region, Bolivia, is in kind of a, a unique position in the, the along the Cordillera margin. This is a, the mountain range that basically mm-hmm. encircles the really the whole Pacific, but in particular mm-hmm. in South America, the Andes. And it uh, it's an area where there's been some what we call well differentiated granites. These are intrude magmas that came up that are highly evolved. And when you see magmas like this, sometimes you get uh, a lot of different metals, uh, you know, basically transition metals, like mm-hmm. what you would see in the periodic table. Mm-hmm. Now, in particular, uh, silver is ubiquitous in these. Uh, often zinc and lead are as well, uh, but some have tin, and this one has actually very, very good tin. Uh, we also see gold. We see a bit of copper. Uh, we see unusual metals like indium, for example. Uh, bismuth, things like this, but uh, it is truly a classic uh, Bolivian-style tin-silver polymetallic system. The best analog for this is the Potosi district, which is from our property, Isca Isca, is about, uh, I believe, 180 kilometers due north of us. Potosi uh, is a somewhat more eroded version of a caldera like this, and because it's been more eroded, the, uh, the old old folks, uh, you know, we're going back to Spanish time, we're able to get in there and mine a lot of the, the silver uh, in the early days. Mm-hmm. And Potosi, you know, has, is really probably the single biggest uh, producing silver deposit on Earth. Mm. It's produced well over a billion ounces of silver. It's also produced a lot of tin. You know, a lot of people don't, aren't, you know, they don't know much about tin. Tin's kind of an un- unusual metal. Not too many f- people are familiar with it, but uh, Potosi has been a, a world-class uh, supplier of tin uh, for many, many decades. Uh, so mm-hmm. what's what's exciting about our project, Iska Iska, is that the caldera has not eroded all that deeply. In other words, mm-hmm. the system appears to be entirely preserved. Uh, we have, uh, as you said, a large caldera complex. It's about just under two kilometers in diameter. And uh, what a caldera is, is effectively the, the throat, if you will, of a, a very, very large volcano. You can imagine the size of a volcano. If you have a, uh, a caldera that's two kilometers, it's a pretty mm-hmm. good size, uh, 
pretty good sized volcano. But uh, the the magmas, okay. So everybody knows that a volcano has a a magma chamber at depth that feeds the the magmas that then form the lava in the volcano or the, the material that comes out of the ground. Well, some of those magmas, uh, they as the the volcanic activity subsides, they they rise up and they kind of park themselves uh, a few, you know, a short distance below the surface. So that some of them might be a few hundred meters. Some might be a, a couple of kilometers, but these uh, magmas, these pulses of magma, they, they continue to to intrude the, the volcanic neck, and each one, in this case, seems to have brought uh, metal with it. So we have a very complex, kind of like, you know, think of it as three-dimensional mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a complex system in which repeated pulses of magma have formed these mushroom-like uh, bodies of mineralization. You know, so in our drills, uh, for example, the last drill hole that we announced, we actually see two two different uh, very, very broad zones, as, as well as some smaller zones. But the big broad zones, you know, 100-plus uh, meter zones, are are just an absolute smorgasbord of metals. Look at the the numbers in the press release. You'll see what mm-hmm. I mean, mean. You know, in some places, they're, they're high in silver and zinc, for example, and then in other places, they're higher in tin, and then in other places, they're higher in gold. You know, each one of these uh, mushrooms or each one of these, uh, you know, pulses uh, that form this system uh, is unique, but it brought a lot of metal with it. Uh, it is an absolute remarkable discovery. Mm-hmm. Now, as I understand it, um, there's three three pipes so far that are that are mineralized that you know of. I mean, there's other there's other pipes in this caldera, I believe. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the May fourth announcement. Uh, was the first assay that came from the central breccia pipe, which is another really large one, 56.2 meters grading 196 grams per ton silver equivalent. Uh, yes. Do I have the, and 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 can you give our listeners some sort of a sense of the scope of both the Santa Barbara pipe, which you've got a lot of holes drilled into, and the central breccia pipe? These are big things, aren't they? Yes, they are, and and. While it's it the the breccia pipes themselves are very important to the story, it's not the end of the story. Like it, all the mineralization is not confined to these pipes. Uh-huh. Uh, what we're finding is there's actually substantial mineralization outside of the pipes. Mm. You know, for example, in that that release you you mentioned a minute ago in early May, uh, we also had a very long uh, channel sample along one of the the artisanal adits that goes in. To the Santa Barbara pipe, but mm-hmm. the bulk of the mineralization was actually in the wall, in the margin of that pipe. So, huh. I guess the the way I would describe this is, you know, I kind of gave the three dimensional mushroom kind of picture a minute ago. But, but if you look at it in plan view, you look straight down on it, it's really a ring of breccia pipes that forms the margin of the the caldera. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you have kind of a daisy chain, you know, like one pipe after another. And they actually encroach on one another. They actually almost, you know, in some places they do touch one another. Uh, we do have, uh, we've documented at least three mineralized pipes now, but uh, they're drilling down, I believe they're drilling down at Porco Sur, which is the southernmost pipe at the moment. And I think um, I think it too will be mineralized. Uh, look, uh, what's, what's absolutely astonishing is, I mean, I, I, I would like to say, you know, oh, you know, this pipe has this and this pipe has that, and, but it's really a collage of pipes. And, and what we're finding is we have yet to find the limit of the mineralized system. Every single hole we've drilled 
has hit mineralization. We haven't found the outer boundary of the thing. Uh, we hmm. haven't found that the depth, you know, like every, virtually every hole that we've drilled is bottomed in mineralization. Mm. Even holes that we have down, you know, upwards of a kilometer deep, uh, they're still in mineralized rock. You know, I'm not saying the entire thing is mineralized, but but we have in each hole. Look at the news releases. Typically, we have, you know, two or three long intercepts in each hole with a bunch of shorter intercepts. Volumetrically, uh, a lot of what we've drilled, in fact, probably over half the core we've drilled, is mineralized. Uh, I think in that last hole, if, I, if memory serves, uh, there was something around 64% of the overall length of that drill hole was mineralized. Wow. Okay, it was reported, reportable intervals of mineralization. You know, I'm a gold guy, and you know, I, I try to rationalize this because it is complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, I would, I would, you know, just suggest to people you can kind of think about this in terms of gold equivalency if that makes you feel better. And that's how I deal with it. But, uh, you know, you, you, you kind of look at the silver equivalent numbers that we publish mm-hmm. and then you can convert them to, to gold equivalent. And I think if, if, uh, if I did my math correct, which I'm pretty sure I did, uh, the, the 64% of mineralized, uh, interval or hole in the last one, uh, had a weighted, uh, you know, gold equivalent grade of about 1.4 grams. I mean, Whoa. we're talking like 430-something meters yeah. <laughs> of, of 1.4-gram gold yeah. equivalent. Yeah. You know, that does not fall out of the sky every day. That's, that's just insane. Yeah, so uh, let me ask you, Quentin, so what, can you comment a little bit on the, on the exploration program that's in place now and what the objectives of them are? Because it's just, it seems to be almost overwhelming. Uh, well, <laughs> it is, like... You know, they, they've done a great job ramping up in site. They built a new core facility. They've got uh, a new logging software, and they're getting all the systematics worked out. Right now, there's three drills operating on site. Two are operating from surface, and they're drilling holes up to, you know, a kilometer deep. Uh, we also have one deep capacity underground rig because there's little adits and stuff. We can actually get back in and put up drill stations inside mm-hmm. the mountain, effectively, which saves us a heap of drilling because we don't have to drill from surface with mm-hmm. that rig. And uh, that's our third third tool, our third rig. All right, now they're producing over, you know, typically over 300 meters of core a day. You know, wow. this has been a bit overwhelming. So, you know, rather than, you know, like bringing another rig up right now, they're trying to get, uh, get to equilibrium and caught up with logging and stuff. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it they will, they'll get, you know, there's a lot of good people, good geologists in, in Bolivia. Osvaldo has a lot of good connections, and mm-hmm. he's been able to staff things up. Uh, it will. I think there's 33 holes uh, that are drilled or something like this, and uh, many of those are are in the lab for assay right now. Uh, hole 10, for example, which is probably going to come sometime in the next you know few weeks, I'll say, uh, is a phenomenal hole. It, it had just a crazy long interval of, uh, I think it was 500 meter or more of continuous mineralization. Oh, quite interesting. Um, look, uh, it is, you know, it seems overwhelming, but it's a good problem to have, I guess is the way I would put it. When you can't find the edge of your mineralized mineralization, it's usually, usually a good outcome. It's a good outcome. Well, just real quickly with a couple of minutes left here yet on, um, tin, I mean, what is the value of tin? I, I have no idea about the tin market. 
Look, Tim, I mean, is that a valuable metal in this in this uh, in this project? Do you think? You know, I checked Tim Price this morning. Thirty over thirty three thousand dollars per metric ton, Jay. Whoa. It's it's getting towards uh, all time high. I believe that might even be an all time high. Uh, look, tin is not used for tinning, you know, cans and stuff so much. That was in the old days. But where's tin's very important these days is electronics. It's uh, basically the the foundation for solders that you know used in electronics and many other oh. other uses. So yes, it is uh, highly uh, needed, especially in the new green economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you want to go down that road, mm-hmm. uh, but but what makes it also very important is that. Uh, there haven't been a lot of primary tin discoveries in recent times. So, you know, as an industry, a mining industry has not focused on certain metals from, and well, tin is one of them. It's yeah. really in deficit. So a lot of the good tin deposits are being mined out or have been mined out. We need to find the next generation. I think we found one of the biggest right here. Interesting. Well, it certainly is an exciting story, Quentin. Um, we'll have to leave it go with that for now, I guess. The other, the other thing, I guess, Bolivia, maybe just real quickly, Bolivia is a, is a country that people might be a bit queasy about investing in. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that with 30 seconds well, look, or so? Yeah, look, uh, the new president is pro-mining. He's said publicly that he welcomes international investment in mining. You're seeing some mining companies come in. I've heard, for example, Rio Tinto is popping their head up now. Uh, you know, and this is in addition to Pan American Silver and mm-hmm. others who are already in the country. Look, this is a good outcome. It reminds me of where, uh, where say, Ecuador was mm-hmm. a few years ago. Mm-hmm. They're just now opening up. If anything, I think we got a good trajectory for the next few years in the political side. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, Quentin. Thank you so much for updating us on this very exciting story, and we'll look to do it again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jay. All right, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because David Rosenberg will be with me right afterwards to tell you why you don't really need to worry that much about a massive inflationary problem. We'll hear what David has to say, so don't go away. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program 
Welcome back, Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have David Rosenberg with us again today. David is certainly well known to any of you who have watched, uh, so who has a regular practice, watched CNBC or Bloomberg over the years. Uh, he's uh, the founder and president of Rosenberg Research and Associates. Uh, it's an independent financial markets and economic consulting Firm launched in 2020, about the time that we last had David on the show, when he launched uh, that new venture of his. Uh, he is also the author of Breakfast with Dave. It's a daily distillation, a distillation of uh, of his economic and financial market insights and forecasts, uh, and that will remain the centerpiece of the suite of products he is now offering. In his new venture, uh, you can go to RosenbergResearch.com, RosenbergResearch.com, uh, to learn. More about him. David certainly is, is a well-known economist, and uh, he spent years at Gluskin Chef, and before that uh, at Bank of America as a head e- economist uh, for Bank of America. That is uh, Bank of America Merrill Lynch, uh, 2000 to 2009, and uh, uh, he certainly is uh, very well-known and very highly regarded, and I really value him for his independent thinking, uh, which is why he's here today to tell us that we shouldn't have to worry too much about inflation over the longer term anyway. Uh, Before I say hello to David, I should also say that he is sharing a very extensive deck of charts uh, that really illustrate his views on the economy. Uh, And he he believes the worries, as I mentioned, about inflation is is overblown. Uh, But you can uh, quickly and easily gain access to David's charts. Very kind of him to make them available to you. Uh, If you go to J. Taylor Media, J. Taylor Media, Com. Click on the banner on the right side of the homepage, right above David Stockman's banner, and just, just click on there and uh, enter your email, and you can get this wonderful deck of charts, which I've uh, looked at before the show today. Very interesting, and they do tell a story, and I think very well fit David's view of the economy. David, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. You know, um, you, again, as I as I mentioned, I think you believe that this inflation hysteria, uh, you would call it a hysteria, I guess, it, a lot of people very worried about inflation, uh, comparing it to the 1970s. Uh, you think it's very overblown, and I want to thank you very much for making your, that uh, deck of charts available to us. Uh, on page four, I'd like to maybe refer to some of the things in your in your chart book. On page four. Uh, of that deck, you you cite Bob Farrell's ten market rules. Obviously, believe you believe those rules should be paid attention to at this time when people are freaking out about the possibilities of a return to stagflation or something worse. Uh, what can you tell us about Farrell's rules as they apply uh, to the current market situation? Well, look, it's uh, you know the the, the rule about um, when all the uh uh, forecasts and experts agree something else is likely to happen. Uh, I think really fits the bill right now uh, on this score. Uh, and uh, I mean, there's a there's a whole range. I mean, all ten really matter. Uh, you know the 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 that uh, you know that um, you know the bubbles go further than you think, but they don't correct by going sideways. Uh, you know, he uses the term exponentially rising or falling markets. They don't correct by going sideways, and uh, we mm-hmm. are into a variety. Um, of asset bubbles, uh, not only in equities, um, but also in residential real estate. And I do think that um, uh, crypto or Bitcoin, uh, despite its practical uses, yeah, is in a gigantic uh, price bubble. And when people confront me with how they value Bitcoin on the 
uh, outstanding value of gold, I say, well, why not just buy the gold? Uh, yeah. Buy what you're valuing uh, this um, uh, <laughs> digital currency against. But, you know, uh, I would just say that, um, you know, th- those are the 10 market rules to remember. Those are the 10 commandments of investing. Uh, the most important one uh, is, as you said, uh, is that when everybody is on the same side of the trade, uh, mm-hmm. it's an overcrowded trade. Uh, your initial comment on inflation, well, I mean, you just have to, uh, you know, Google, uh, do a, a word search on inflation. And, of course, mm-hmm. it's your introductory to me um, about, uh, you know, about inflation. And I ask most people if they can even define what inflation is for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they say, yeah, it's rising prices. But that's not <laughs> what it is. Uh, no. So, yeah, you know, and then you ask, you know, what's your model? Well, just they'll say to me, well, you know, look at your, look at the CRB index. Look at lumber. Look at copper. Look at cotton. Look at corn. Uh, and I just find it amazing that, you know, there's been economists, PhD economists that have spent their lives and, and have written scholarly research reports in the journals on modeling inflation. And I speak to people on Wall Street and Bay Street and Howe Street and Montgomery Street, and everybody thinks they have inflation figured out. Um, and uh, everybody has a one-variable model when it comes to inflation. And guess what it is? It's the CRB index. Yeah. So, look, I've been doing this for 35 years. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. just earlier today I heard uh, about Charlie Plosser, who headed up the Fed, saying he's concerned about policy as following the pattern of the 1960s and 1970s. Well, what does this economy today have in common with anything in the 60s and 70s when the economy was unionized and mm-hmm. we had, you know, when you ask somebody about a cola today, they think you're talking about a soft drink. A cola back in the 60s and 70s was a cost of living adjustment. You see, inflation was institutionalized. Yeah. We had a much more regulated, unproductive economy. I mean, the gat round of global negotiations that ultimately broke down not just trade barriers globally, but non-trade barriers, non-tariff barriers. The gat rounds of negotiations didn't end until 1979. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have global competition. Uh, mm-hmm. We hardly had domestic competition. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a completely different demographic and mm-hmm. a, a completely inflexible labor market. There's nothing. So when people are saying this is the 60s or 70s, I just roll my eyes. Like, you know, you really, you surely must adjust for what we're seeing today. I mean, the level of the, the, the rate of the rate of automation, the, the productivity, uh, the share of technology spending in the U.S. economy today is a share of GDP is infinitely bigger than it was in the 1960s and 1970s. Mm-hmm. And, and it's one thing nobody talks about. People talk about wages. They don't talk about productivity. And so mm-hmm. people say, well, we have the wages, we've got the bonuses, companies have to attract labor. Productivity growth in the United States right now is running over 4% year over year. Now, it's mm-hmm. hard to make book as to whether or not, you know, that's a real fundamental shift. Is it noise? But how come, you know, when you talk to people about, let me ask you, Jay, when you ask people about inflation, did mm-hmm. they ever even mention the word productivity to you? Did they not understand there is a huge no. inverse correlation between productivity no. and inflation? And these no. people are telling you about the 1960s and 70s when no. productivity was stagnant. Yeah. Well, no, that's very the mother's milk. The mother's milk for inflation ultimately mm-hmm. is productivity adjusted wages. It's called unit labor costs. 
Mm-hmm. And we, don't, we so, don't even have wages right now rising as fast as productivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, no, if you're actually putting on your thinking hat and not being reactionary and not mm-hmm. focusing on the noise, but actually on the fundamentals, no, no, this is actually, yes, we do have right now a serious maladjustment in the economy. We do have for a period of time a a, a situation where the demand for merchandise goods has outrun the production. And a lot of this is just basically related back to the pandemic mm-hmm. and the policy response to the pandemic. Um, and we do have supply chain difficulties right now. Only a fool mm-hmm. would say that we're not. Mm-hmm. Uh, to then paint a picture of long-term inflation from what is really conflicting and confounding noise coming from the pandemic, to me, the people that that make that as part of their narrative uh, for their clients, uh, I think are doing a real disservice. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you mentioned stagnant wages. Uh, wages aren't going up as fast as productivity, but hasn't that been something that's been happening over the last couple of decades, in fact? And we're seeing... Uh, a hollowing out of the middle class to a great extent. You know, the top 10% are doing okay. The top 1% or one-tenth of a percent are doing extremely well. And this has seemed to bring about some of this populist movement in America. First, I think Trump was a reaction to that. But I think Biden is too and Bernie Sanders and that crowd. Uh, We're seeing some what I would consider far-left economic policies, massive amounts of, of stimulus that are going into the system, uh, but don't we have some real problems here too, in terms of the this dis you know this re um, redistribution of wealth uh, and the political reaction that is sort of if you if you see it that way um, a political reaction that is coming as a result of this. I mean, there are, there are a lot of social problems in America. Is what I'm getting to. It seems to be, you know, and I'm I'm not proposing uh, socialist solutions to those problems, but I'm just. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, look, um, you know, these are very complex social issues that you're bringing up uh, that have been around for a long time period. Mm -hmm. Um, We thought they might get redressed with President Obama, but in fact, these inequalities got worse. Mm -hmm. Um, And look, we we thought, uh, everybody thought that we elected this uh, socialist from Arkansas in 1992 with his wife in the Oval Office to revolutionize health care. And uh, Bill Clinton uh, is actually, you know, he's cutting uh, capital gains taxes mm-hmm. uh, in the later part of that decade, you know, with Bob mm-hmm. Rubin and Larry Summers. So, yep. um, so, so, you know, what you see isn't always what you get. Um, Donald yeah. Trump was supposed to be the populist and the nationalist and the protectionist. Uh, and uh, these wealth inequalities and income inequalities, you can argue, got even worse under his tenure. So, and there's no question that the pandemic um, exacerbated uh, mm-hmm. the gap between the haves and the have-nots. And fiscal policy was an attempt uh, to uh, redress that. But remember that, you know, most of these, these stimulus checks and the extended emergency jobless benefits are really just very short-term uh, Band-Aid solutions. Mm-hmm. You know, when, you, when you really think of it, um, you know, the, the wealth inequalities has really come from decades of Fed policy mm-hmm. aimed at uh, having your back as an investor. You can't talk to anybody in the markets and not say, well, the Fed has your back. Yeah, the mm-hmm. Fed has your back to promote asset inflation. Uh, and so that asset inflation is beneficiary for parts of the population that, uh, that own those assets, uh, principally mm-hmm. 
the equity market. So mm-hmm. uh, the Fed's actions, uh, you know, when the Fed was uh, threatening to come in and buy high yield over a year ago, people were asking me, do you think they'll ever come in and buy the stock market? Because, of course, junk bonds resides in the capital structure right next to equities. Mm-hmm. Right. So we, we have that situation where, you know, well, the Fed has our back. Um, I mean, people talk about the Fed today. The Fed's talking about unemployment. I mean, Powell is talking about social policy issues, although the Fed is really not equipped to deal with those things. That's why we have a government. The central bank is a central bank. Um, But, you know, the the issues that you're bringing up, I mean, look, it's, it's um, it's a real mystery. I mean, at some point we have to ask, what is it that we really want? Uh, People talk Mm -hmm. about new eras. Uh, We thought we had a new era with Donald Trump, um, but what happened in 2018 is that the midterm elections got in the way. Everybody thinks now we have, as you just said, we have a, you know, one of Bob Farrell's rules, right, is that there are no new eras. And certainly in the United States, uh, a two-year political cycle uh, is not built for new eras. Uh, Everybody's telling me after Donald Trump gets elected to go read Hillbilly Elegy. Well, Jake, Mm -hmm. do you hear anybody telling you to read Hillbilly Elegy today? Uh, No. or, Or do they ask you to start reading books on modern monetary theory? But the thing no. is that these are two-year political cycles. Uh, I don't think a, a, a lot's going to get done. I don't believe in this view that we have a new political culture uh, mm-hmm. for, for higher inflation. I don't believe that's the case at all. Uh, you know, you take a look at uh, what's happening. It's very interesting to me that when you look at Donald Trump's electoral loss, it really came down to his character, or I guess you would say his lack of character. His ratings yeah. on the economy were spectacular. I mean, that was the strongest suit. And when he right. went up uh, on the hustings and uh, he would talk about the lowest unemployment rate heading into the pandemic for Hispanics and for African-Americans and for the youth and for females, he was 100% right. Their unemployment mm-hmm. rates went down to historic lows uh, for all minorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was right about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he didn't. And, and when you look at his ratings on the economy, his handling of the economy was always consistently very high. He didn't rank so high in other areas. Uh, so I don't really quite see that uh, the Democrats have a big mandate for the sort of changes they might think that they want to put into the system. They only have really a two-year opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. And so no, I don't think that uh, we're going to be seeing um, a, a, a sustainable move here towards redressing um, these inequalities. Uh, and, and then you're taking a look, for example, you know, uh, you know, will 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 he get? Will Biden get this infrastructure package through um, without uh, pursuing tax increases? Well, who are the tax mm-hmm. increases on? Uh, well, you know, they they are on high income earners and they are on capital. But you can mm-hmm. see right now, even within his own party, uh, the fiscal conservatives don't want to go that route. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I'm not of the view that we're in some sort of new era of sustainable mm-hmm. fiscal and monetary. Reflation. You know, people thought that that, that that we had that under Alan Greenspan, Ben Bernanke. The whole process, certainly, of, of creating inflation out of thin air, it's been tried. It's not that easy. And in an environment mm-hmm. where we have inordinate debt burden, uh, which have only gotten worse, mm-hmm. and we're all a year older from where we were a year ago. And, and, and I know there's people that think it's the opposite, but there is a negative correlation between aging populations and inflation, just to ask mm-hmm. anybody who lives in Japan about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the structural forces, what I'm getting to here is that, you know, the structural forces that were in place before the pandemic that created the conditions for sustainable disinflation 
and I'm talking about debt, I'm talking about uh, demographics, I'm talking about disruptive technology, are so much bigger than the price mm-hmm. of copper, corn, and crude. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are the overriding elements, and, and, and if anything, they have become more, more disinflationary. And I would say that mm-hmm. the biggest source of disinflation and why the money velocity numbers and mm-hmm. the credit multiplier in the banking system has pretty well broken down yeah. is because the ratio of debt to GDP at all levels of society in the United States during this pandemic to save the system Mm -hmm. across household, business, and government sectors, it's 370% of GDP. Yeah, higher than World War II. Yes, and and, and I'll tell you that when you look at what the cutoff point, what was the critical cutoff point where the debt got too big for its own good and produced these disinflationary or deflationary outcomes uh, was back in the dot-com bubble when that debt ratio crossed 250% for the first time. <laughs> now it's 370%. Wow. So, the fact, so that, these... the fact that this debt ratio, Jay, has exploded 40 mm-hmm. percentage points in the span of a year, that's never happened before. And people just don't understand when, mm-hmm. how important a deflationary metric that is because mm-hmm. they're too tied to their Bloomberg terminal looking at the CRB index. But that's mm-hmm. why the credit multiplier is broken down. That's why the loan deposit ratio in the bank system is broken down. That's why money velocity is broken down and, and rendered the monetary aggregates on their own to be a pretty useless set of statistics mm-hmm. as a barometer of anything in the right. context so David, of contracting money velocity. Yeah, so David, if... Um We've got this. So what you're saying is we've got a lot of productivity gains ahead of us here that will offset. And uh, and then you have the drag, the debt drag, that is a drag on the economy. And the velocity can't get going because there's too much debt in the system relative to income. Um, what then? Uh, what then do you like? What do you What do you think? Where do you think people should be focused in their investments? So I think it was slide ten. You showed that 65% of the people in a Barron's poll thought that stocks were the were the place to be. Uh, that was the, the most attractive asset. I think something like um, only 12% or so thought commodities were attractive. Only 8% liked real estate. Only 5% liked gold. It seems to me what you're saying that the electrification, to what extent that, that happens, a lot of these new technologies require some metals along the way. There's some shortages. We were just talking to my guest before you came on. Tin, a company that's finding tin in Bolivia. Didn't realize it, but there's a shortage, relative shortage of tin. I mean, what do you like, David, as we go forward? We only have a few minutes left, but what do you think people should be focused on? What segments of the economy are you bullish on now? Because as Bob Farrell says, bull markets are more fun than bear markets. So help help us have some fun. I get that, but the question is a bull market and what? And, of course, you know, the implication is we're talking equities. But, look, there is a 75% time-worn inverse correlation between the debt ratio I talked about and core inflation. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I think here's what's going to happen. All this fiscal stimulus you've seen is temporary. We're going to have a fiscal withdrawal in the second half of the year, just as 
a lot of the supply is coming back on stream. It's disingenuous to say, oh, the reopening trade only influences demand, but it won't influence supply. Supply will come back with a lag. So mm-hmm. I think that the inflation concerns are overdone. I think inflation expectations come down. I think people will be surprised at, um, at how the pace of economic activity moderates in the second half of the year. So I think we're going to get a bull flattening in the yield curve. So I'm bullish mm-hmm. on long bonds. Uh, and I'm bullish on anything that would be correlated against that. I think that if I'm right on slower growth and lower rates, uh, lower market rates, uh, then I would say that without being bullish or bearish on the stock market, I tell you right now, that will favor uh, growth over value. Now, maybe you want to have growth at a reasonable price, uh, but that would be uh, defensive tech. It could be utilities, staples, healthcare. Uh, but there are parts of the stock market I like, but the more defensive and I would say more dividend-oriented sectors. I think you'll be fine there. But I think there's going to be a nice trade, and I think it's already started in the 30-year Treasury bond because I think that it's a, there's too much inflation uh, narrative, uh, too much inflation priced in. But I think at the same time, people don't recognize that what's held the glue together, what's held the glue together for the economy has not been the Fed. The Fed's done that for the markets. For the economy, it's been these on-again, off-again fiscal stimulus measures. But guess what? The last big one from Biden in March is already running its course. And what Uh do you do for an encore? So I think the emperor gets disrobed. I think we'll start to see much weaker economic data past June and July. And I think that's going to trigger a a bull flattener in bonds. That's not going to be very good news for the the banks, by the way. Uh, But maybe if you're going to be in the financials or financial likes, I probably want to be more in the utilities uh, and the REITs, and I would say the staples, than be in the financials or in the commodity trade. In the commodities. So, you, so you're not bearish on commodities necessarily. No, no, no. What I'm saying is that I, I, I'm not uh, – I think the value trade has run its course, uh, and I think mm-hmm. that – and so I would say that, uh, I mean, I'm still a long-term fan of gold, um, and I guess that you can pick your points on secular shifts and copper as it's related to greening the world. But, mm-hmm. you know, no, I'm not a, I, I think that, you know, I'm seeing the credit impulse indicator in China roll over. China's been deleveraging and the U.S. Mm-hmm. economy is going to be slowing down. So I don't know what else to say when you have 35% of global GDP cooling off. How are you going to be yeah. bullish on commodities, which really needs right. the global demand part of it? So yeah. I'd say, yeah, I'm a little circumspect on the, uh, on the demand side as far as it pertains to commodities, especially after the surge that we've already seen. I think there's going to mm-hmm. be other places to put your money to work. And I would say that, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And in the United States, when you think about it, the United States, the long bond trades like it is like it is high yield in the sovereign government bond space. <laughs> so I would say that's an area that, uh, and I know it's, it, when you look at those, those Bloomberg, Bloomberg, sorry, the Barron surveys, the, the treasury market is probably the most detested, detested market on the yeah. planet. You go yeah. back to Bob Darrell. Yeah, exactly. Pretty compelling, pretty compelling, I think, to go the other way. On the yeah. consensus on this one. All right, David. All right, David. I, I we'll have to leave it go at that because because we're out of time. I want to thank you so much for for sharing your thoughts with us. Certainly, uh, some, you gave us some things to think about that are contrary to the uh, to the status uh, quo is thinking. But that's the reason we like to have you on. Thank you so much for being with us, David. And uh, all the best to you. All right, folks. Well, that is it for this week. Uh, next week we've got uh, Alistair McLeod joining us at uh, Gold Money. Also. Quinton Henning will be with us to talk about Novo Resources, and Michael Oliver is back. Until then, goodbye, and God's blessings to you.
Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.